Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. So as you all know, the last three weeks have all been about tornadoes. Well, the last three weeks, except for last week, which was one of my fire stories. Thank you for listening to my fire story yet again. Uh, I'm sure you guys are getting a little tired of tornadoes by now. So we're going to cover a different type of spring disaster. This is in the same vein as tornadoes, but it's not quite the same. This week, we're going to talk about the exceedingly misunderstood lightning strike. Obviously, I want to start out by explaining what lightning is. At its most basic, lightning is an electrical discharge caused by an imbalance of positive and negative charges. This can be between two clouds, within the same cloud, and between the cloud and some random thing on the ground. That could be a tree, the ground, a building, a car, or you. But aren't there electrical imbalances all the time? That's basically what static electricity is. And that's true. Static electricity and lightning are more or less the same thing if you simplify it enough. So let's explain that a bit further. So when you rub your feet on the floor with socks on, then walk over to the doorknob and touch it, it zaps you, right? That's because as you rub your feet on the floor, an electron imbalance occurs in your body. The floor becomes negatively charged and your feet become positively charged. Basically, when you rub your feet on the floor, you're stealing electrons from the floor, making you positively charged. When you go to touch another person, that positive charge buildup is released to that person, shocking them. This is essentially the same as what happens with lightning. It isn't entirely understood what exactly happens with lightning, but it is believed that small chunks of hail, like super small, anywhere from a quarter millimeter to a couple millimeters in diameter, collide and bounce off even smaller ice particles. The smaller ice particles are able to travel up with the updraft because of their small size and they don't weigh that much. The hail then travels to lower levels, creating an imbalance within the clouds because when those two ice particles collide, they trade electrons and then they go on their way. The imbalances then continue to travel to separate ends of the cloud, with the bottom of the cloud becoming negatively charged and the top of the cloud becoming positively charged. The atmosphere acts as an insulator between the two charges. Once the strength of the charges becomes greater than the insulation of the atmosphere, a lightning strike fires off. So, that explains the cloud-to-cloud lightning, basically. But what happens with cloud-to-ground lightning? The one that we really care about because it's the one that affects us on the ground. Well, as the storm travels by, the negative charge in the bottom of the cloud attracts positive charges in the ground. These positive charges spread up towards the cloud, and once the charge becomes greater than the insulation of the atmosphere, what is called a liter of negative charge descends towards the ground. The leader can spread out along a bunch of different branches, essentially searching for a positive charge traveling up from the ground to the negative charge. It basically picks whatever positive charge is the least amount of resistance. Once that connection occurs, we see the cloud-to-ground strike. That's how lightning happens. But what about the rest of it? Why are we so concerned when it occurs? Well... As you probably know, lightning causes all sorts of problems when it strikes things it shouldn't. That's why people worry about it so much. A single lightning strike contains anywhere from 1 million joules of energy to 1 billion joules of energy. That sounds like a lot, and really it is, but it doesn't last very long. 
a lightning strike lasts about two-tenths of a second. That's only enough power to last a quarter of a kilowatt hour. The average price for a kilowatt hour in the United States is 13 cents. So a lightning strike would save about three cents if you decided to power your house on a lightning strike every once in a while. The big issue, though, is the heat produced by lightning strikes. No lightning strikes do not have a temperature. They produce heat. It, there is a difference, but they produce heat. The average lightning strike is about 53,540 degrees Fahrenheit, 29,726 degrees Celsius for my non-American listeners, and about 30,000 degrees Kelvin for anyone who wants to be that guy. Just for a comparison, the surface of the sun, that thing that helped to create all life on planet Earth, that warms the planet and makes it so we can live here, is a downright chilly 9,980 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 5,520 degrees Celsius and 5,778 degrees Kelvin. Again, you're welcome, that guy. Lightning strikes are hot is basically what I'm getting at here. Now the other thing lightning does is just all around weird stuff. Weird things happen when they get hit by lightning. I've been on several lightning strike fires in my career. One struck a tree about 25 yards from the house, traveled through the ground, and out a disco ball in the basement of the nearby house, starting the disco ball on fire and burning the room in contents. It was very weird. We only would have noticed we only noticed it because I was walking around the exterior of the house and I looked over at the tree and I asked the homeowner what happened to the tree and when it got struck by lightning because it was split in half and he said, oh, it happened about two or three minutes before we noticed the fire. I was like, oh, so we need to look into that. I've also seen a fire where the lightning strike made a direct hit on the house and traveled along a gas line before igniting the escaping gas, which then extinguished itself. It will explode outlets, fry televisions, make random things melt. It's crazy what lightning can do. I saw it I had a fire where it struck the house and it caused a fire that was about six inches by two inches wide. Why that caught called into insurance? I'm not entirely sure. They literally could have just painted over it. But they did. A typical lightning strike contains about three hundred million volts and about thirty thousand amps. Most of the circuits in your house are rated for 120 volts and 15 to 20 amps, give or take. When you get that much electricity running through circuits that are quite frankly not capable of holding that much, weird stuff happens. It'll turn lights on and turn lights off, and it's just weird. I've had people report that their house got struck by lightning and all the TVs in their house turned on. They got struck by lightning, and they said that the sump pump started pumping the other way. Like, it's just weird stuff. So that's basically a really rough overview of what lightning is. And that brings us to our disaster for this week. The night the city that never sleeps went to sleep. July 13th, 1977. The summer of 1977 was not a good one in New York City. For starters, it was insanely hot. The East Coast was in the midst of a heat wave and people were miserable. The high for the 13th of July was a stupidly hot 93 degrees. The dew point, that scale we talked about a few episodes back that ranges from, hey, this isn't too bad to, oh my god, please stop, it's, I'm melting, was hovering between 65 and 72 degrees, 
which is right in that sweet spot of, oh lord, it feels miserable out here, I hate everything. Air conditioning was important for that day, because, you know, it was hot. Not having air conditioning was going to make an already grumpy New York City even grumpier. But they weren't just grumpy because of the heat. 1977 New York City, and more or less the United States as a whole, was in the middle of a financial crisis. The New York City government was basically right on the edge of bankruptcy, where you're doing your best to cut things that you don't think you need, but you really kind of do, in a desperate attempt to not declare bankruptcy. New York City was forced to cut a combined 8,500 teachers, police officers, and firefighters. Fare on the subway was raised, the sanitation department was cut, and trash pickup was slowed down severely. Protests occurred almost daily. Firehouses would close, and people would break in and keep them open by staying there. They would throw their trash in the street regularly to protest delayed trash pickup. The City University of New York started charging tuition for the first time, which did not make people happy at all. All kinds of programs were severely cut back or outright eliminated. This made people, well, it made them mad. Violent crime rates were some of the highest they had ever been. The New York Police Union and several of the other public unions put out a pamphlet called Welcome to Fear City, a survival guide for visitors to the city of New York. The front of this pamphlet was helpfully emblazoned with a skull wearing a hooded cloak just to make doubly sure you knew that it was dangerous. It was just as ridiculous as you were imagining. They had nine rules in this pamphlet. The first rule was stay off the streets after 6 p.m. This was apparently a hard deadline because it's mentioned to not be misled by the late sunsets during the summer because apparently criminals can only crime after 6 p.m. and definitely no other time. It doesn't give a time that's safe in the morning, so we can only assume that it is never safe. Rule number two, do not walk. That is the advice. Do not walk. Walking in New York City was apparently the second most dangerous thing you could do. They recommend you summon a taxi from literally any building before going outside anywhere in the city. Avoid public transportation. Obviously, this doesn't include taxis, because they literally just told you to summon a taxi. They never have crime, but they say to never ride the subway for any reason ever, which is totally cool because no one could afford it anyway. They also say you can maybe ride the buses in midtown Manhattan, but only during the day. And that brings us to rule number four. Remain in Manhattan. I mean, in fact, you should just not leave Manhattan. You can't go to any of the boroughs. There's crime there. There's definitely no crime in Manhattan. That never happens. And, I mean, if you really think about it, it's pretty obvious why they're telling you not to leave Manhattan. Rule number five, protect your property. Their advice is to engrave everything you own. That is insane, first of all. And really bad advice, because who wants to engrave everything they own? They helpfully point out that every police department has their own engraving kit. So if you want to take your stuff to the police department, they'll have it engraved for you. But you're not supposed to walk and you're not supposed to take public transportation. So if you can't afford a taxi, I guess you're screwed. 
They also said stores are keeping their doors locked and will only let customers in after a careful inspection. And we know exactly what that inspection entails and who they aren't letting in. The sixth rule, safeguard your handbag. Basically, hold on to your bag with both hands. But you shouldn't be out walking anywhere, so I don't know why it matters. Rule number seven, conceal property in automobiles. This one is ridiculous to me. They're all ridiculous to me, but this one especially. They're saying robberies and crime are on the rise. You have to hide your things in your car. But you can't do it when you park because someone will see you. So you have to do it before you get there. But if you're shopping in New York City, it doesn't matter because someone's going to see you store your stuff. Oh, but also, auto thefts are on the rise, so this doesn't matter at all. This is basically just a fear tactic to get the mayor to rehire the police department, police officers we just laid off. Rule number eight. Do not leave valuables in your hotel room and do not deposit them in the hotel vault. It literally tells you to only put things in bank vaults. But also, those are being robbed too. So really, nowhere in New York City is safe, and I don't know why they put out the pamphlet giving you rules to be safe in New York, because they've literally ruled out all possible things. You can't walk, you can't take public transportation, you can't drive your own car because it'll get robbed or stolen, you can't keep things in a hotel, hotels aren't safe, so that leaves just not coming. And lastly... Rule number nine, arguably the only important rule on this entire list, is be aware of fire hazards. Duh. Like, that feels like they called the fire department and they were like, hey, do you have anything to tell the people to be safe in New York City? And they're like, yeah, tell them not to go to fire, not to ignore fire hazards. But, like, clearly this whole thing was a sham to put political pressure on the mayor to rehire police officers that they laid off. But this wasn't the only pamphlet they put out. One was called, If You Haven't Been yet Mugged Yet, dot, 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 which I can only assume is similar in writing style to If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, only probably more racist and way more dumb. So, We've established that New York City was grumpy and full of rage, which sounds like New York City now, just New York City in 1977 was probably a little bit more racist and uh, a lot more broke. The police department was actively stoking that grumpiness and rage by releasing things like the above. But there was another thing that was really contributing to the fears in New York City during the summer of 1977. And this is the one that really dominated the headlines. A man by the name of David Berkowitz was living in Yonkers and working as a letter sorter for the United States Postal Service. If that name doesn't ring a bell, there's a more famous name he's known by. His more known name is the Son of Sam. The Son of Sam killings were in full swing and had gripped most of the New York papers with their very elaborate details and his letters to the police department and reporters that they would then publish. It had been revealed that the son of Sam was targeting women with long dark hair, so women all over New York City dyed their hair and cut it short. The killings also seemed to target couples, so all over New York City, couples were on high alert. There were reports of 
people being told that they should not sit in their car as a couple. So they would get out and they would sprint into their houses as soon as they pulled up in front of their house. It was crazy. And the Son of Sam killings were more or less random. And this fear over the randomness of the Son of Sam attacks, combined with the heat and the budget cutbacks and the rising crime, would help spurn what was to come on the night of July 13, 1977. And another thing with the Son of Sam attacks is there was they weren't confined to a single borough in New York City. It was everywhere. He was hitting everywhere. So there was really no idea where he was going to hit next. It's just they had no idea, and who knows when they were going to catch him. So it was better to follow every crazy rule you heard on the street to avoid being murdered by the Son of Sam. So, that brings us to the night of July 13th, 1977. At 8.35pm on that fateful night, the overall load of power on Consolidated Edison, the power system for New York City, was 6,091 megawatts. Which was below the peak at about 4pm, no doubt caused by the heat of the day and air conditioners running hard. But the power was starting to pick up as darkness fell due to lights from residential and commercial buildings coming on for the city that never sleeps. Power companies often have interconnected lines to help with situations like a blackout or something of that nature. Or in New York City, when you have a really hot day and you have a really hot night, there's a whole lot more air conditioners running, air conditioners running as well as a ton of lights that are on. So that pull on the power system is going to be significantly more. So you have interconnections with other cities and other power districts to help cover that excess load if you can't create it on your own with your own power generation. About 8.30 p.m. that night, there was a thunderstorm rolling over Buchanan, New York, which is about 40-ish miles north of New York City. Also located in Buchanan, New York, is the Indian Point Energy Center, which is a three-reactor nuclear power plant. Only two reactors were functioning at the time in 1977, but it is a nuclear power plant. Fair warning, there's going to be a lot of megawatt numbers being thrown at you here for the next part. So, at 8.37 p.m., a lightning strike caused a fault on two 345-kilovolt circuits which tripped the circuit breakers at the Buchanan South substation, which is just due east of the Indian Point Energy Center, 40 miles north of Manhattan. Because of a design error, these circuit breakers would not close to complete the circuit after the overload had gone through from the lightning strike. This caused an overload in a different circuit, causing the number 3 nuclear generator at Indian Point Energy Center, which had been generating 883 megawatts of power, to shut down. The shutdown of this reactor overloaded a different interconnected circuit, which shut down a transfer of power from a different area and dropped another 427 megawatts. So this dropped New York City down 1,310 megawatts from the 6,091 megawatts that it was pulling just two minutes prior to the lightning strike. Other connections from different interconnections of the power companies made up for this drop of power. Everything was still stable-ish at this point. At 8.55 p.m., so 18 minutes later, 
A second lightning strike shut down two more lines and tripped the breakers again. Luckily, one of those breakers would automatically reclose. The other one did not. At this point, we are down an entire generator and three circuits. This shutdown dropped another 1,044 megawatts. This was, yet again, picked up by other lines. But things were in serious trouble now. They were down 2,354 megawatts. That's a lot. That's about 33% of what they were pulling. That made all of the lines that were still running dangerously overloaded. Then at 9.19 and 11 seconds p.m., another circuit breaker trip. This one wasn't because of lightning. This was because of an overload, but it didn't matter. Another 1,202 megawatts were lost. 42 seconds later, a transformer tripped off. This dropped another 415 megawatts that were flowing into the system. At this point, red flags are flying up in Consolidated Edison and the nearby power companies. New York City has lost a ton of power, and they're pulling a ton of power from places that really don't have the capacity to be pulling that much. They're powering their own districts. They can't also be powering New York City's districts, which is one of the biggest power districts in the world. So... At 9.21 p.m., the Long Island Lightning Lighting Company shut off one of their circuits manually to prevent damage to their system because they didn't also want to have a blackout similar to the blackout that previously happened in New York City in 1965, which shut down power to nine states and two provinces in Canada. This dropped another 520 megawatts from New York City. This was New York City down 4,491 megawatts. And they were attempting to pull this from whatever connections they had left. And frankly, that was never going to work. At 9.29 p.m., another connection to an outside power company tripped open from being overloaded. This lost New York City and Con Edison another 1,150 megawatts. Then the last two remaining exterior connections shut off. Consolidated Edison was now isolated, attempting to run the entirety of New York City on its own, down a generator, and with a bunch of connections down. It simply couldn't. It was not designed to do that with only down a generator and no outside connections. The power required at that time was 5,981 megawatts. On its own, down one generator... Con Edison was producing only 4,282 megawatts, which you'll notice is not nearly enough, and there was no way that they were going to be able to overload their system enough to meet that demand. It would only take seven minutes for the entire consolidated Edison system to completely shut down. By 9.36 p.m., almost the entirety of New York City would be in the dark. It was the night the lights went out in NYC. In the immediate aftermath of the blackout, things were immediately in disarray. Subways were obviously shut down, straining people all over the city. There was a baseball game being played by the Mets and the Cubs at Shea Stadium. Well, to be honest here, the Mets were terrible, so it was more of an exhibition for the Cubs to show Mets fans what a good team looked like. It was the bottom of the sixth inning. 
Mets third baseman Lenny Randall was up to bat. Then the lights went out. It's not like it super mattered if the lights were on, really. Only 14,626 people were in the stadium that seats 57,000, which is a terrible 26% attendance. Indiana football games get better attendance than that. At the time, the lights went out, the score was a 2-1 Cubs lead, which was shockingly low for the sixth inning. Right after the lights went out, Randall decided, hey, no one can see anything anyway, I'm going to take a swing and pretend like I hit it, run the bases. Now, this is where the story gets weird, because Randall claims he actually hit the ball and was running the bases on a legitimate pitch. He seems to be the only one who remembers it that way. He actually made it to second base before the Cubs pitcher, Ray Burris, launched the ball, the ball he supposedly just pitched to Randall, which, if we're going to follow Randall's story, means that Randall hit it directly at the pitcher in the dark, pitcher was able to field it and then throw it at him as he got past second base. So he launched the ball at Randall, and then Randall was tackled by Cubs players Manny Trillo and Yvonne De Jesus. After that, the people were even more confused. It's dark. It's hot. We're at a baseball game. Are they going to continue to play? Are they going to cancel it and finish it later? Like, What are we doing here? It got a little testy in the stadium at first. But then Shea Stadium organist Jane Jarvis played White Christmas into the dark and the stadium full, well, full is a generous term, the stadium slightly filled with people started to sing White Christmas. Then some Mets players drove their cars onto the field and practiced turning double plays in the beams of their headlights to entertain the people still in the stadium. Eventually they all cleared out of the stadium and they went home. And that game would end up being finished two months later on September 16th. Remember how I said the Mets were doing well, keeping it 2-1 to one in the bottom of the sixth inning? Which means there's three innings to go. Really, it was pretty well for them. Uh, the Cubs would end up winning 5-2. to two. Across the city on Broadway, obviously shows were going on that night. And... Some Broadway shows continued with the lights coming from stagehands holding flashlights. In one interesting bit, the cast of Oh, Calcutta, a nude show that was showing on Broadway, tried to find their way to the edge of the stage and wrap themselves in clothes offered by the audience because they couldn't find their way back to the dressing rooms because there were no lights, obviously. Several television channels that had been broadcasting since they first started broadcasting went off air for the first time ever. People had to hand-turn the famous Coney Island Ferris wheel to get riders stuck on the ride down. The streets were packed with people yelling and more or less partying. Bars were selling beer and liquor like crazy to maybe make money off product that was probably going to go bad because it was hot and nobody knew how long lights were going to be out. Both LaGuardia and Kennedy airports were closed down for eight hours. Pilots that were descending to land in either airport with all their bright runway lights, were suddenly greeted by massive black holes where the runways used to be. They were then diverted off to other cities to land because no one knew when New York was going to get lights back. Superman, the 1978 one with Christopher Reeves as Superman and Marlon Brando as Jor-El and Gene Hackman playing Lex Luthor, was being filmed in New York City at the time. 
The film production had to be shut down for the day because they were using New York City as a stand-in for Metropolis. Richard Donner, the director, literally thought he caused the blackout when he turned on his stage lights. And that's just some of the more fun parts of the bad situation. But it was not all fun and games that night. It got dark that night. Excuse the pun. Then Mayor Abraham Beam was giving a campaign speech during the blackout. After the blackout happened, he joked, See, this is what you get for not paying your bills. Considering New York City literally was not paying their bills, it's a bit of a terrible idea for a joke. He would, predictably, lose the election he was campaigning for. Like, he would finish third in the primary. He didn't even make the general election. And you remember that whole long list of things I talked about just a few minutes ago? You know, the cut public programs and the smaller police force and the smaller fire department and the teachers that were laid off and the financial crisis and the schools that were closed and the fire departments that were closed and the poverty and the literal serial killer murdering random people because his neighbor's demon-possessed dog told him to? Yeah, all that frustration and fear came out the night of the blackout. You see... When the lights went out, most shops and stores were closed for the day. And this wasn't immediate, but it started all of a sudden. Whether it was the alcohol making people more brave, or the darkness, or the power of a group, who knows. But soon a store was broken into. Then another. Then another. And then another. And then a store was torched. And then another store was torched. And then a car was torched. And then couches in the streets were torched. And before you know it, the city seems to be on fire. Trucks were pulled up and chains were attached to bars on windows and doors. Then those bars were yanked off. The looting began, and reports of looters were everywhere, all throughout New York City. People that had stolen stuff from stores were being robbed on the way back to wherever they were taking the stuff that they had just stolen. Multiple people reported to the police that they had stolen stuff and then had that stuff stolen from them. It was absolute chaos. Fifty brand new cars were stolen from the Ace Pontiac showroom in the Bronx. A meat market in Harlem was broken into and robbed. People were stealing anything that wasn't nailed down, and some things that were nailed down. One police officer reported he stopped a man carrying 300 sink stoppers. What he needed 300 sink stoppers, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe he had 300 sinks that he needed to fill with water. Maybe he just loses sink stoppers on a regular basis. I don't know. Seems to be a weird thing to steal. But hey, you do you. And then there were the arsons. FDNY fought 1,037 fires that night. Some firefighters reported when they arrived to fight fires, they were pelted with rocks and bottles from the crowd. In total, 59 firefighters were injured in the fires. One fire destroyed a looted warehouse, four tenement buildings, and two houses. That was just one fire. There were 1,037, and that includes dumpsters and cars and stuff burning in the street that they had to stop and put out on their way to probably the next fire, unfortunately. And that would be exhausting. i got to be real honest, it'd probably be a lot of fun, because you don't get to see that much fire that often. But... That would be exhausting the next day. And at one point, 
the police kind of just stopped trying to arrest people that were stealing. Like, they'd see teenagers in the street carrying a TV down the street, and they would stop them and say, hey, where'd you get that TV? And they'd just put the TV down and run down the street. And it would just sit there until somebody else was like, hey, free TV, came up and take it. Numerous people that were interviewed basically called it Christmas. They would break into any store they wanted and take whatever they wanted and then hopefully not get robbed on the way back. More than 4,500 people were arrested on the night of July 13th. 1,600 stores were damaged. At least 130 stores were looted. An estimated $300 million worth of damage occurred. But incredibly, only one person was murdered on the night of July 13th. He was standing around a garbage can with some friends that they had lit on fire, singing and dancing and generally having a good time and basically acting like a teenager during a blackout in a city that basically never turns its light off. They were setting off fireworks and enjoying themselves. As you would normally expect from a bunch of teenagers. All of a sudden, they heard some fireworks, and Dominic turned to his friend Andrew and said, Hey, I've been shot. And Andrew replied, No, I think it was just some fireworks. And then he collapsed. And Andrew looked down the street and saw a well-dressed man running away. Andrew took off in pursuit, but the guy started firing at him and hit Andrew across the head. Unfortunately, Dominic died before help arrived, bleeding out from a shot to an artery. This murder has never been solved. Dominic was known for fighting anyone who crossed him, or really anyone who needed a good beating for harassing girls in the neighborhood. The area he was in at the time of the murder, and the area he lived in, was Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn. Now, Carroll Gardens in the 70s was a majorly Italian section of New York City. It was one of the safest neighborhoods in all of New York City. And the reason for that you can probably figure out on your own, based on Italian in the 70s in New York City, and if you've you know ever watched Goodfellas, it was the New York Mafia. The New York Mafia was keeping the neighborhood safe. All five families had connections and operations in the area. And it wouldn't be completely out of question for Dominic to have put in one of those aspiring goodfellows in his place with a beatdown. And it definitely wouldn't be out of the question for one of those guys to realize the blackout was a perfect time to deal with a guy who had embarrassed him. And we all know that the Mafia wasn't super known for taking being embarrassed in a fight well. He also could have fought with somebody that had the connection to take him out. And I gotta say, that seems to be exactly the case. In July 1997, Detective Patrick Talbot received a phone call from two sources who claimed to have knowledge on who did the murder. But they wouldn't give their names, and they wouldn't come forward. They called back two months later, but hung up mid-conversation, saying they'd get back to him, but they were scared. They never did call. This probably is a Mafia hit. I know I talked about Son of Sam earlier, but this doesn't fit the M.O. for Son of Sam. The only real connection between this murder and any of the Sam, Son of Sam shootings from before July 13th was the last one in June. A man had been seen fleeing the area of the shooting in a leisure suit, and I would consider a leisure suit as moderately well-dressed. The other thing was, the next Son of Sam murder would actually take place in Brooklyn. But if it were in fact Son of Sam, I don't know why 
two people would call saying they knew who did it and it be Son of Sam, considering he's spending six consecutive life sentences in jail and he's pretty open about the murders and apparently fairly remorseful. But anyway, the first part of New York City to receive power again was a section of Queens at 7 a.m. on July 14th. It would take until 10.39 p.m. on July 14th for all of the city to have power again. And it would be a miserable, miserable day because yet again, it was hot. There was high humidity and there was absolutely no air conditioning. Now, there are a number of alleged effects of the blackout. One of the bigger alleged effects is the birth of hip-hop. It had been suggested that hip-hop really took off because of stolen DJ equipment from electronic stores during the looting. But it appears this story only comes from two early DJs, DJ Disco Wiz and Curtis Fisher, who actually took advantage of the looting in the blackout to steal a mixer and then suggested that it caused hip-hop to grow. So that seems more of a, hey... It would be really cool if this was what caused hip-hop to grow, because this is what I did, but it seems extremely unlikely. The other alleged effect was a baby boom nine months later. It is alleged that the birth rate went up significantly in April of 1978, which I guess makes sense. What else are you going to do when it's dark and hot? You can't sleep, it's too hot. May as well add to the population. But this effect hasn't really been studied to see if it's true. The baby boom. Adding to the population has been studied a lot. And this blackout was truly unprecedented. The U.S. Department of Energy put out a special report after the uh, blackout had ended in 1978. And at one point during the report, they literally state that if this had been presented before the actual occurrence of the blackout, it would have been called impossible. So no one was really prepared for this. And uh, it taught everyone a lot about risk assessment because, as we have learned through all these disasters, is when you have the perfect set of circumstances, anything can happen. It caused many of the major buildings in New York City to completely rethink how they planned for potential power outages. Several hospitals had issues getting their emergency generator systems started during the blackout. So they implemented new plans and new systems of generators in order to test them regularly to make sure that they work. The same thing happened with the World Trade Center and the New York Stock Exchange and things like that. There were more systems put in place to safeguard against future blackouts, which is a good thing. Interestingly enough, Consolidated Edison would have another blackout on July 13th, this time in 2019, 42 years to the day later. This would affect the west side of Manhattan and would leave 73,000 customers without power, thankfully only till midnight this time. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, if you want to, you can follow us on Twitter, DisastrousHSTRY, that's Disastrous History without the vowels, and then on Instagram at Disastrous History, spelled correctly. You can also email me at disastroushistory at gmail.com. And all of the episodes are on our website, disastroushistory.com, as articles where you can read them with some photos and whatnot instead of having to listen to me talk the entire time. And if you can, if you enjoy the show, please leave a review. 
on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave a review, not use Spotify. Uh, I would appreciate it. And if you don't love the show, also leave a review and let me know what I can do better. Uh, I hope you guys stay safe and always remember to check your smoke detector batteries.